I'm going to speak a bit about Passover, but also about this week's Torah portion, and then transition on into the discussion of Passover. So this week's portion, Shabbat, just before Passover comes in, is called Tzav, Command. And it's about, again, the Korbanot, the offerings. And the first offering that it mentions is a very interesting one. It's called the Olah offering, which means the completely burnt offering. It's the offering that they completely bring on the altar. And don't fall asleep. This is interesting, okay? So this is, what, this is the language that Hashem is commanding the, Moshe and the sons of Aaron, who's told to then command the sons of Aaron, is... This is the olah, which should always be burnt on the mizbech, on the altar, all night until the morning. There should always be a fire on the altar. And later on it says again, There has to be always a fire on the altar, which never goes out, never extinguishes. That's the law of uh, the olah. So, our rabbis tell us that this special offering called Olah atones for thoughts, for bad thoughts. And this is what I want to get to is that we as Jews believe that there is a tremendous power to the thought that you have that can actually bring out reality into the world. And it does bring reality even in the thought itself. And that's what I want to get to. Because if the Torah tells me that there was a designated offering, one of the main offerings, called the Olah. And it was to atone for thoughts, for bad thoughts, then we know that thoughts are something which are very, very important. And that's where I want to get to. We know that when I speak, that creates reality. There's scientific studies that are done that when someone says, good words, the energy in the person changes, and in fruit, and in things that grow. You know, they've done, they've done tests um, with people that said good words to a plant, and the plant grew nicely. When they spoke badly in front of the plant, the plant actually shriveled and didn't grow in the right way. Uh, they tried it with brachot, making a blessing when they're near the plant, and the plant, because it's in an environment of good words, um, it would actually affect the plant. Yes, I do have sources for this, and I would share it with you. I, do not, I didn't write it down, but this is a scientific study. And they've also studied and shown how ice particles can be changed um, based on the words that are spoken to those ice particles. Um, the, the figure of the ice particle comes more beautiful when someone speaks good words near it, when you say beautiful or something nice next to um, water and then freeze it, the particles of ice will actually change based on the words that are said near it. Very interesting studies that are done that have shown that speech, for sure, scientifically today we can see that speech has a re a, an ability to create something. It says, B'schut hevel pien shel tinokot shebet raban. In the merit of the air that comes out of the mouth of young children when they pray, in their merit, we, the world is, is sustained. The merit of little children. 
Why? Because their words are pure. First, because they're pure, they're more pure. But when they say Tehillim, the Psalms or any words of prayer, even though they don't understand it, there's, there's a reality that's coming out of their mouth. This is a spiritual understanding, a tradition that we have, that the words that you have can affect the walls of your home. Even the walls of your home listens to the sound of your speech. And it affects your environment. You can actually move into a house and not even know about it. But the walls have been listening to negative energy. You won't even know. We actually have to make sure that we have a Chanukah bait when we move into the house. So that the first thing I do when I move into my house is I sanctify it. I bring good energy into it. Always important. We believe spiritually and now scientifically we see that the power of speech has the ability to create life and death is in the hands of the tongue. Through speech, you can give somebody life, you can kill them. You can, it's all through talk. That's where it all starts. And we also think that thought has the ability to create healing. A person can heal himself through thought. We know that if, if you're in a good mindset, somebody who's sick can change their reality. Its studies have proven that a happy person, the person that's got a good mindset, creates stronger antibodies. This was a big discussion during COVID. His white cells are stronger, more powerful. And they fight bacteria as much better than they could if he wasn't ha as happy. So a person's mindset can actually affect the reality of his health. Literally, his cells change because of the way that you're thinking. So words literally have an ability to create things. And when I look at it Kabbalistically, it's a whole new level. You read the books of Kabbalah, we create angels through every word that we say. When you say Amen, there's an angel that's created. And there's like a whole world of, of reality that's created. We just don't see it. This is what we truly believe that is created through the power of our speech. But I want to talk about thought. And the rabbis, the Talmud says that a bad thought is worse than a bad action. Again, a bad thought is worse than a bad action. It says kashe. Kashe means not that at the end of the day, if I do an action that's bad, right? thinking of stealing, this is what the Talmud is saying. Thinking of stealing is more difficult than stealing itself. And that's very difficult to understand. You'd ask me, what do you mean? I mean, if I steal, I, I transgressed a Torah obligation. If I thought of stealing, I didn't transgress anything. One has consequences, the other doesn't. Yeah, but the Talmud says it's more difficult. The thought of doing something bad is more difficult. Not that it's worse in the way that one is uh, considered less, it, 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 thought is considered more punishable or more with more difficult consequences. It's more difficult to get out of. It says, kashe, like it says also, kashe adam yamsuf. So, our rabbis say that getting married is as difficult as splitting of the sea. What does that mean? Is it difficult to split the sea? Of course, for us, it's very difficult. For God, nothing's difficult. But it says, it's harder, it's, it's as difficult, the marriage, as the splitting of the sea. What does it mean as difficult? It means that for us, for our comprehension, right? 
to understand that how the sea is able to just take its course and change its way through nature, from our perspective, for God, nothing's difficult. But for our perspective, for nature to change, as much as that's difficult for us to understand, so too, when you see two different people from two different parts of the world coming together, that's also something very different. It's a miracle as much. It's as much of a miracle. So Kashem means it's difficult. A, a, when I say that a bad thought, this is what the Talmud says, is more difficult than a bad action, the reason is because the, the bad thought has created me into a more animalistic being. That's what it's done. Right? When I, when I think bad, a thought of doing something wrong, a thought of attacking someone, a thought of doing something that's forbidden, whatever it is, whether it's physical, um, sexual, monetary, all these thoughts, right, are, they now come part of me. Does this make sense to you? When I think about things all the time, it comes my part. It comes me. It says, our rabbis say, we say in Shema every day, we say in Shema every day, don't just stray like a, like a tourist. Taturu is like a tayar in Hebrew, which means a tourist. Don't be a tourist with your heart and with your eyes. Don't just stray after your heart and your eyes. What does a tourist do? He, he just goes, he's, he's curious. There's no goal. He just wants to know what's going on. But there's no end, right? A go- a, a, a tourist doesn't know exactly to what end he's going into, like what, what he's going to see. What, let's just go through it, right? Don't be a tourist with your heart and your eyes. Meaning, if you feel like this is going in the wrong place, stop it. This is what I'm trying to... A, because a bad thought can destroy me much more than a bad action. Because it makes me that type of person. Let me give you an example. Okay, so I go into work and my co-worker doesn't say hello to me. So straight away, in my mind, I start getting thoughts. Why didn't he say hello to me? Why didn't they speak? Yesterday, they also didn't say hello. Today again, what's going on? And all these thoughts, what are you meant to do? Don't let these thoughts keep going. That's called a tourist. You're allowing the, the thoughts in your, in your mind to just keep going. Go, go, go. Stop. Immediately stop those thoughts. Right? That's, that's what we call velotatur. Don't let your, your heart and your eyes just travel around. If you know that it's going in a bad direction, stop it. Another example is we have in Judaism, Shmiratanaim. It's true that in order to get married, I need to, find, I need to look around. I need to find a nice, attractive person for me. But if it's unnecessary... Why should I do it? This is not just in terms of um, illicit relationships, but in, in general. Why would I want to excite myself about something which I'm not going to get anyway? Does this, that's why we have something called Shmirat Naim, guarding one's eyes. Guarding one's eyes is for your own health. Not just because of spiritually, but also for your health. Spiritually also it's not good, but guarding one's eyes... Why should I pursue something which I'm not going to get anyway? Why should I look at something in a way that's going to make me become part of that? It's not worth it for me. There's many areas where I can stop myself in my thought because otherwise it's going to come part of me. It says by Egypt, 
when, when the Jews were in Egypt, it says, The Egyptians were bad as with us. It doesn't say that they were bad to us. It, they were bad with us. Because otanu means it came part of me. When they were bad to me, eventually I came part of that mentality. You know, a lot of people say that after going through the Holocaust, when you, when you deal with, when you face such cruelty, it's hard to get out of cruelty yourself. Because you think, and that's what you, it comes part of you, like that's the only way I can survive, is being like this. This is what I see everywhere. Part of the problem of the Jews being in Egypt was they came, they came part of that culture. They came a cruel, part of that cruel culture. It came part of them. It wasn't just that the Egyptians were bad to us. They made that part of me in the subjugation that I was having in Egypt. So that's also how it is with physical things. And I'm not just talking about um, bad things. I'm also talking about things that are permissible to you. We're allowed to talk about money. You know, we're allowed to talk about jobs. We're allowed to talk in Judaism. There's nothing wrong with talking about money. There's nothing wrong with talking about food and eating food. There's nothing wrong with that. But even those things need a limit. Because if my mind is all the time about food, so it's going to come part of me. I'm going to come that type of person as well, like that animalistic person that's overly obsessed with a material thing that really is just fleeting. It goes, it comes, it goes. Nachmanides says, when it says in the Torah, be holy, he says, what does that mean, that we should be holy? It says, make yourself holy with that which the Torah allows you to do. Not with that which the Torah doesn't allow. And he famously says that you can have somebody who's a naval, which means someone who's a, a disgrace with permission of the Torah. Meaning just because I'm legally fine, right? this is how people are. Just because as long as it's legal, who cares? Yeah, but you're being, dis you're being terrible just because it's legal. For instance, I'll give you an example. It's legal to fight a court case and win custody over the kids. Let's say somebody gets divorced. So you, you have the money. You're legally allowed to pay and bring in the best lawyers and win custody over the kids. But is it the right thing to do? Even if it's legal, that's another question. Right? Is it moral? So you can have somebody who's constantly thinking about things that are permissible, not things that are forbidden, that are permissible and still making the, that's not good either. Not because anyone's judging or watching or anyone's on top of, because that's going to make it part of you. That comes part of you. Oh, you're a food person. Oh, you're a money person. You're a materialistic person. Why? Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with liking material stuff, but overly obsessing yourself with it, allowing that thought to overly um, take over you, it comes part of you. We have another rule. Listen to this rule. It's fascinating. Our rabbis say, If you invalidate someone, you're really invalidating your own problems. Oh, you see that person? That person there is always angry. 
Oh, you're judging him because he's always angry? You're probably seeing anger in yourself. If you invalidate somebody, you're probably invalidating yourself. For it, I'll give you an example. Someone walks into your house late. You, you had a meeting and they were meant to come at 8 o'clock. And they come in 20 minutes late. Well, what's your reaction? Ah, oh, this person's always so late. If you say he's always so late, then it could very well be that that's something that you are invalidating yourself with. If it's happening continuously, fine. But if it's the first time you meet the person and you invalidate them because of one time, then really you have an invalidation in yourself. This is a rule that we have in Talmud. Very interesting rule. Kol aposel I'll give. I'll explain to you what I mean. Gil, what color car do you have? Do you have a car, Gil? Yeah, it's black. Black. Mm -hmm. What co Do you mind saying which company? Which? Um, what is Honda. it? A Honda. A, a Honda. How many black Hondas do you see? More than I can count. <laughs> you know why? Let me ask Serena. That's how you pronounce your name? Okay, Serena. How many black Hondas do you see? In a day? Like, generally. Do you see a lot of black Hondas all the time? Lot, do you notice them? Yes. Do you have one? I have a white Honda. <laughs> do you see more white cars than black cars? Yes, I definitely see more white cars. <laughs> I have a silver Honda, by the way, so Honda Club. Gabe, <laughs> you have a silver one. Do you, do you notice when, whenever you see a silver Honda similar to yours, do you point it out and you're like, oh, wow, he's got the same car as me? Yeah, all the time. I'm like, oh, there's my there's a car twin. <laughs> Do you know how many silver Hondas I see? I only see Gabe's. I see zero. I don't see it because it's not on my mind. Because it's not something I have. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many strollers do you see? Do you see a lot of mothers with strollers around? Not so many? I'm sure, Gil, you're in a busy place. You see sometimes strollers and mothers? Yeah. yeah. Do you know the models of the stroller? Which type of stroller they're pushing? No way. No way. Because you, you know why? Because you're not in the world of strollers. I tell you one thing, though. When you get your stroller, you'll notice everyone who has the same stroller as you. Stroller's a thing. It's like a car, especially for a, a newly, new, new child, for a mom and dad. It's, it's like having a car. It's exciting. So you see things based on what you are living in. This is a very important rule. In the place that you are holding, that's what you see in others. Because that's what's on your mind. And that's why a lot of times when people come and they invalidate someone, and, and we find that there's no proof, there's no witnesses, and, and there's nothing. So why are you invalidating them? Because this person's promiscuous. Do you know what we say? You jump first to prove that this person's promiscuous. We question whether you are promiscuous yourself. We don't say it. Oops. Oh, this thing is... We don't say it, but we question whether you yourself is promiscuous. You hear what, you hear what I'm saying? Because no one else was coming up with this. So... This is the rule. When you invalidate somebody else, we question whether you're invalidating yourself. Interesting. Why? Because it's what's on your mind. 
We have to be very careful with what's in our mind. This is why it's so important. Our, our thoughts really create who we are. Do you know what we believe in tra Jewish tradition? Our thoughts stay with us even after we live. This is what the Gaon of Vilna says. Even after a person passes away, his, his body doesn't exist. But the way he's been, his train of thought that he built in his lifetime through his body is the type of thought he will have in his soul. Because spiritually, right, there's something called a dibuk. Have you ever heard of a dibuk? A dibuk is where a, another soul goes into another body. This actually has happened a lot of times in Jewish history. And we have many, many stories written of this, of different people, even in our generation. The past 20 years, 20 years ago, there was a famous story of a dibuk. A dibuk is basically where somebody has another soul from a previous, that's taking over this person's body. Have you heard of this skill before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it's a of very it. interesting uh, idea. Yeah. So there's a lot of lost souls that they passed on, but they didn't live a very good life. And they're called lost souls. They can't go further than being in, the, in, in this world. So the, the body, their body doesn't exist, but they're still around. They can't go beyond. And they are clinging. They're trying to get back into, uh, into the world to, like, to move on, to get out of this space that they're in. They want to move on. But they can't. This is basically the idea. And then a Shema is desperate to, to get fixed. But it can't because it's not in a body anymore. Only with the body can a person fix himself. So eventually this, but this soul manages to go into somebody, a human being, that's alive in this world. They, if that human being is doing something wrong, like very bad, they have the ability at that moment to go into that person. And it goes in through a food or something that he's eating. They have the ability to go into that person. It doesn't happen as much in our generation because of the level that we're on. You have to be on a certain level for it to really um, happen. But this is the idea. People get taken over by another soul. And um, this is called in Hebrew a dibuk. And many times when that dibuk comes back in, it talks with terrible Stories written of these dibuks that speak terrible nivulped, like terrible language. Words that are disgraceful. They say the worst things. And many of the rabbis that were at the time that the dibuk was brought to, if there is a dibuk, they take it to a Kabbalistic rabbi. Basically, the person is speaking without moving his mouth. When there's a dibuk, through his through his throat, and his voice completely is different. And you could tell that this person is being taken over by a, like another soul. And basically, the, this person is brought to a, rabbi, to a bunch of Kabbalistic rabbis, specific rabbis, and they spe say special prayers, and they speak to this dibuk, and eventually they make it leave the body, and then the person comes back to himself. So you could search and read about this. There's probably a lot of fake stuff online, but this is the idea. And uh, I remember when I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, there was a whole, on the radio, they were talking about this dibuk that was taken to the Kabbalistic center in, in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. And they were working, there was a bunch of Kabbalistic rabbis there, and they were praying and 
screaming, lock the doors. It was like a whole process until they get rid of the dibuk from the body. So um, one of the things they notice is the dibuk speaks terrible language. This has happened. And they ask the dibuk, why are you speaking like this? You come from the other side. And the answer given is because that's what I was when I was in this world. When I was, because according to Judaism, the body is respected because that's what's the tool to build my neshama. It's the tool that prepares me. Like, that's what it says. A rabbi say that this world is like a corridor. And in the corridor, I'm meant to fix myself up, you know, do up my tie, make myself look good, right? fix myself up in this world, perfect myself so that I can go into the world to come more beautiful. This is what it says in Kohelet. Shlomo Amelech, at the end of his life, wrote a very interesting book. And he says, whatever you can do, do in this world with your strength. This is in Kohelet 9, 10, chapter 9. He says, do with all your strength. Because there's no there's no action, there's no calculation, there's no wisdom, there's no mental right, connection in the grave. Which you're growing, you're going to. Meaning the only way that you can achieve is in this world through free will. And that's why in Judaism we respect the body a lot. This is why. So somebody, let's say, who works on himself his lifetime on anger, starts off as a young person, gets angry, heated about any discussion or topic that he's having an argument with. He can't handle an argument. What he's meant to do, or she's meant to do, is over time, work on the anger. That's the point of you being in this world, is to perfect your midot, to work on your midot, on your characteristics, to a point that takes a lifetime of work, to a point that you're, Calm and more perfected. And hopefully when the person leaves this world, they are more complete. And that's why, and that's, what, that's the purpose of us being in this world. That's what the Gaon of Vilna says. The Baal Shem Tov, the great Hasidic master, says that a person is where his thoughts are. Not where he is or she is, but where your thoughts are is where you are. You can have somebody who's in a beautiful wedding. But they're a Holocaust survivor and thinking in the wedding of their grandchild, thinking of what was happening to them in the camps. And they're suddenly in that world, deep in that thought. They're not here in some, in some manner. They're in their thoughts. On the other hand, you can have someone who's in prison, who's imagining himself in another place, in some mansion with a beautiful home. And, and, and he's not in prison anymore. We can change our reality through our thoughts. This is, this is where I'm trying to get to. And the more that there's a good thought in you, the more that you can overcome challenges. Life is not easy. Our rabbis tell us that from all directions, that Moshe Chaim Lutzato of Mesilat Yesherim, Path of the Just, says that from all directions you pulled. You pulled here... Go here, go to this party, go there, go there, go work, go this, that. You're pulled in so many directions, but we don't really be with ourselves. So many directions, we're pulled here, there, but we're never with our neshama. And, and these physical attractions are pulling us in all different directions. It's a very hard job, but we have to know that where our thoughts are is where we are. And that's why having a good thought is so important. Imagine an environment. Where I know my friends are never talking Lashonara. No gossip. 
someone is doing something wrong, we, we just call, right? there's a, there's, let's say we have a conversation. One guy comes in and says something absolutely inappropriate. Completely inappropriate. Ridiculous. Why were you saying that? How do we react when he's not around? That's called fighting Lashonara. If I'm in an environment that is gossip-free, it's the most amazing thing. An environment where everyone's there to lift each other up. You know what rabbis say? Buy yourself a friend. Buy yourself? What is this? I'm going to pay for a friend? Yes. If it's a good friend that will raise you up, that will strengthen you, that will give you life, that will give you a meaning, pay for it. Do anything to get it. Because to be in a bad environment is the worst thing that you could do to yourself. Happy is a person that doesn't follow the others that are in a bad environment. But is always in an environment where positive energy is there. Music, positive energy. Right? Everything I'm doing, we have to know that it starts with a thought. And a bad thought can be much worse than a bad action. So the question is, how do we overcome bad thoughts? That's the question. And that's how I would finish off and then go talk a bit about Passover. How do we overcome bad thoughts? Because this is all talk. Then what do we do to overcome a bad thought? Someone comes in the room. They didn't say hello to me. Why didn't they say hello? Someone comes into the room. I, I'm looking at them in the wrong way. In a, right? The guy's there and a girl walks into the room. He's looking at her in the wrong way. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to treat her this way. He wants to look at her for who she is, not for her. Right? He doesn't want to look at her in the right, wrong way. How do you change your thought? So this is the question. Sometimes you have to first just go away. Can't be in a place which is really, really bad environment, which is just talking terrible things. Stay there and then continue to say, no, I'm going to change the way I'm thinking. No, you're just in the wrong place. So sometimes you've got to take yourself out of the situation to change your thought. Change your environment to change your way of thinking. That could definitely help. But one thing's for sure. A person can't really think deeply about two things at the same time. You might tell me, yeah, I can, I can multitask. Yeah, but you can't think deeply about two things at the same time. Both of them, somebody who multitasks does two things, but in a shallow way, not in a full way. So, obviously, the best way is, like we said last week, we spoke about this, is through the Torah study. If somebody wants to change their way of thinking, today we have Spotify, we have YouTube, we have, just go and... Put on an audio of something which is positive. Listen to a shiur. Listen to something of Torah. Listen to something which has meaning. And that will inspire you. Change your thoughts. But even if somebody... I don't believe today there's, that you can't learn Torah. Because no matter what level you're on, there's always a podcast for you. That can change the way you're thinking about something. So Torah study is the tavlin, is like, is like the remedy to negative thinking. That's for sure. But even if you're stuck and you can't think of that, thinking about some mathematical equation can also change your thought. If it's something which is really bad, you can think of any mathematical equation to change your thought. That also can be done. Tefillah, prayer. When someone's praying, when you get used to praying, 
it's very challenging because you start realizing that you can't, you're getting so used to it, it's hard to focus on the words. So what a person is meant to do is say, okay, I'm just going to focus on the word that's right in front of me. That's it. Just in front of me. Just this word. Focus on one thing, and then eventually that will remove the other things. But there's something else that we can do, and that is Zrizut, which is this week's Torah portion as well. This week is called Tzav, which means command. And Rashi in a commentary says that that means to be Zariz, to be quick. Don't wait. Part of our problems of thinking too much is because we're doing, we're waiting, we're sitting around, we're not active. When someone's not active, right? It brings boredom, right? Boredom. And you're just like, okay, I'm not active. I'm not doing enough. So because I'm not doing enough, I'm thinking. All these thoughts come into my mind because I'm not occupying myself. I'm, I'm just relaxing. So it's good once in a while to relax. That's for sure. But we're talking about doing things quickly. And one of the keys to success in life is to be what we call zariz. In Hebrew, which means hasty, hasty, hasty. No wasting time. Hastiness gives a person tremendous amount of, se- of success. You get up in the morning, boom, let's go. You, know, you decide whether should I, go, should I go on a jog or not, just let's go. But hastiness is what brings a person to most of your success. It's called zrizut, especially when it comes to mitzvot. Mitzvah, if you have a mitzvah that's coming towards you, don't let it come like chametz, the Torah says. If you have an opportunity, this is, by the way, why we avoid chametz and Passover. We go back to the beginning. We came the Jewish people. In order to be the Jewish people, we don't wait. We rush. We rushed out of Egypt. Why were we rushing out of Egypt? Who are we scared of? Hello, we, we destroyed Egypt. Ten plagues. We took over. What were we scared of? Why did we have to rush? Because we were rushing to do mitzvot. Because now that we are free, we want to do something with our freedom. That's the idea. So one of the most keys to a person's success in life is zerizut. And I want to tell you about zerizut. Zerizut means to be quick, hasty, no wasting time. The Ramchal, Ramosha Chaim Lutzato again, Kabbalistic rabbi that lived in the 18th century, lived for a very short, short amount of time, but wrote some of the most amazing works. He says that there's two, ta- two parts of being hasty, being quick. There's two parts to being quick. There's before you do it, before you do the action. So, you know, should I give stucker now or not? Should I go? The guy's knocking on my door. Should I get up and give it him? Run to the door without thinking. So there's, before you do the action, there's hastiness to running to do it. But then there's hastiness during the action as well. Because sometimes, whilst you're doing it, you say, eh, why should I finish it off? Or hopefully I can just finish it quick and not think. Part of hastiness means doing it in the right focus as well whilst you do it. And completing it. It's not only enough to rush to read a book about something. It's also important to finish the book about something. Be hasty to finish it. That's another aspect. So this is the language of Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato. He says that 
When it comes to hastiness, there's two parts. One before the action and one after. Before the action, this refers to not allowing chametz to come into a mitzvah. Because when the moment comes, the opportunity comes, or the time comes for you to do a mitzvah, or whether it comes into your mind, you think about doing a mitzvah, quickly, a person should rush and hold on to that moment. And do it immediately. Don't give itself time. time so that more time can be in between because maybe someone else will do it. Maybe you won't have the opportunity to do it later. Maybe it won't happen. There's no danger like the danger of waiting. Why? Because at every moment that is renewed, you are, you are giving a new reason to not do the action. You think, oh, maybe later I'll have the time. Actually, every moment that you did give you reason not to do it, you've now given yourself another reason to not do it again later. If you're 20 minutes late, you've got 20 more minutes of reasons not to go. Not 20 more minutes of reasons to be on time. 20 more minutes of reason not to do it. This is the problem of being slow. But hastiness after the action. What's hastiness after the action? Once a person is doing a mitzvah, he should quickly try and finish it. And not just leave it like somebody who's just desperate to throw off his, his yoke. Just because he's afraid that maybe he won't merit to do it properly and that's why he's doing it. But No, that's not why you do it. Okay, so... For instance, I'll give you an example. To fill in, we put wraps. When do we do it? In the morning. So someone could say, no, I'll do it later. I'll do it in the afternoon. What do we do? We don't eat. It says, If you want to overcome your, your desires to be lazy, you have to overcome it with wisdom, with tricks. It's a battle to fight your, in, your inclination is a, is a war. It's like you're being in war right now. And you need to come up with good ideas to overcome the battle. You know, one of the ways that we make sure that we put tefillin every day is that we don't eat until I've put on tefillin. We don't eat. So I can't, once I'm hungry, I'm going to say, wait a second, I'm hungry. I can't eat yet. So I better put on the tefillin so that I can eat. That's one of the ways. That's actually a Jewish law. It's a, it's a Jewish law that until you uh, until you've prayed morning prayer, you put God first. You don't put yourself first. Put God before you. And therefore, in the morning, the first thing you say is, Your day is dictated by the beginning. Everything goes by the beginning. When you look at a seed, the seed is the beginning of the tree. That's the, at that point, you have a huge amount of manipulation to the tree. Every little difference that you do to the seed can have a huge implication on the tree. Right? A, a, a tree that's on its first year of growth. You can move it to any direction. But after 30 years of growth, you can't move the tree at all. So the earlier someone starts, the more flexible they are. And that's why the way you start the day has a huge impact on your day. Because that's the beginning. 
So you want to start off your day in the most beautiful way possible. And that's why we do it with mitzvot. We do it with prayer. Because we put God first. If you want to have a day which is a spiritual, meaningful, purposeful day, say modani in the morning. Say the blessings in the morning. That would have a huge impact on your day in general. Same with a relationship. Let's put this into practical terms. In a relationship, right, there's an argument that's normal. Every relationship is going to have an argument in it. That's how it is. So at some point, someone needs to apologize. I didn't listen to you. I'm sorry. Right? Someone's got to do it. What gets in our way of apologizing? What always gets in the way of apology? Ego. Ego. Our ego holds us back. No, I can't. I'm not going to do it. Maybe they're going to do it first. Right? Maybe the other person will give in first. So I'll wait. I'll wait. That's the type of waiting that's problematic. Because we know that the person that reconciles is the person that wins. They're the winner of the relationship. Not the other way around. How do I know that? Because the rabbis say in the Talmud, this is the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, anyone who overcomes his, anyone who's able to overcome and overcome his midot, fight his midot, mavirim lo al kol pesham, he's forgiven on all his mistakes that he's done. Somebody who carries the yoke of his mistake, then God will carry the yokes of your mistake. Who does God carry the yoke for? If you are able to overcome yourself and apologize, God is able to say, I forgive you for all the mistakes that you did. That's called reconciliation. Pius in Hebrew. Our rabbis teach us that there's two things that had pius. I'll finish with this. Let me tell you about the sun and the moon. You know, it says in the Torah that on the fourth day, God created the two great luminaries, the sun and the moon. How come? I thought the moon is smaller than the sun. Some explain that this means that from earth, they both look the same size. Because of the distance of the moon from earth and its size in comparison to the distance of the sun, which is much further away but much bigger, if you look at both of them, they both look from the eye perspective of the human eye, they look exactly the same size. Isn't that interesting? The moon is way smaller. But they both come out to be the same from a human's eye. They have the same impact in terms of size, not, not in terms of light. But our rabbis actually teach us, because the Torah continues and says, that there's the big light for the day and the small light for the night. And the stars. What's going on here? Are they both big or one big and one small? So Rashi brings the Midrash, the famous Midrash. They were actually both created the same size. The sun and the moon were both big, the same size. And scientifically, they have proven that the moon was much, much bigger than it used to be. And it shrinked. That's actually a scientific fact. Not just a study, they've come to prove it. That the moon shrinked. It used to be much, much bigger. So, they were both the same size. 
and the moon was reduced in size. In size. Why? Because it complained to God. It said, can it be that two angels are both doing the same job? Two angels both giving the same amount of light? What's the point? Because we know that for every energy that there is, every blade of grass that there is, every energy that there is, there's an angel behind it. Okay, this is all obviously um, fugitive speech, right? They're not physical things. But from our understanding, based on what the Midrash says, there's an angel for the moon, there's an angel for the sun. And the angel of the moon complains, why should we both be the same size? Eventually, do you know what God did? He says, okay, you know what? You're right. Let's reduce you. I'm not going to reduce the moon, the sun. You're the one that said we should reduce someone. So I'll reduce you. So God reduced the moon to a smaller size. And then God created the stars. Why? Because he reduced the size of the moon, he made many, many stars to reconcile with the moon so that the moon will be calm, so that the moon will be happy. I don't get it. He made many, many stars to calm the moon down. Why? Because the moon saw, like, wow, he got reduced in size. The sun is much more powerful. So moon got upset. So God made more stars. What's, what's going on here? What does this really mean? And also, there's stars that are way bigger than the moon. So that's not really reconciling with the moon. For the moon, that's not going to make him happy. He's now going to see many stars that are much bigger than him. So what happened? And the answer is obviously that the purpose of the moon and the sun is to give light to earth, to serve, it, to have a, to serve us, to serve the world, to serve the humanity and everything that it does, to serve. The purpose of the moon and the sun is to give light and serve. The moon started getting upset because the sun is having much more of an effect on the world than the moon itself. What did God do? God made many, many stars that are way bigger than the moon itself. But even with its great size, they are so minute and small that their purpose can't even be seen to us on earth. There are stars that are way bigger than the moon, but their purpose isn't fulfilled as much as the moon is. And that was the reconciliation for the moon. Because when you realize that your situation is not that bad, if you compare yourself to the sun, you say, my situation's terrible. Look how good the sun is. But when you realize that your situation is not that bad, that's called reconciliation. When you see that there's thousands of stars and they are able to give much more light, but they don't serve a purpose as much as the moon. So then you realize, wait, my situation is not that bad. And that's why, actually, it's one of the reasons that Every single time you walk down the street, you see someone in a worse situation than you. God put them there for you to remind you. I know that their, their own difficult situation is their own thing. And we're sorry for them, of course. There's no question. But the fact that you walked past them, specifically at that hour, specifically at that minute, you happened to walk past someone that was dis in a difficult situation, whether it's homeless or disabled or whatever it is, and it happened to be that that minute you walked in the store when he was brought into the store. That's to send you a message. To reconcile with you. That you know your life isn't that bad. It's a message for you. That person has his own message. 
And it's very difficult. And we're sorry for him. We should pray for him for sure that he should heal and whatever it is. But we shouldn't miss that opportunity of looking and saying, I need to be thankful for my life. How can I ever complain? I can walk. Why did I forget that I can walk? It's a reconciliation for you. The same happened with Rabbi Akiva. Who was the wife of Rabbi Akiva? Anyone remember? Story of the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva. Anyone know the story of Rabbi Akiva? One of the most amazing stories that you can imagine. Gabe, who's the wife of Rabbi Akiva? Rachel. 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 Not Rachel the matriarch. Rachel was the wife of Rabbi Akiva in the time of the Talmud. And she was the daughter of the wealthiest man. Very, very wealthy. Very powerful. His name was Kalvasavir. Very, very wealthy man. And he basically had the money for the entire Jerusalem. For many years ahead. He could pay the whole world. The wealthiest person you can imagine. And this Kalbasavir, his daughter, Rachel, was a very wise woman. She was very smart, very with it, very beautiful. Everything she had for her. And everyone wanted to marry her. But she saw this young shepherd, actually not so young, he was already 40 years old, a shepherd that was looking after their sheep, some of their cattle. And they had a lot of cattle. And there was this shepherd in the far corner, hated religious, he hated religion, wasn't involved at all. And who was he? Rabbi Akiva. She believed in him. She said, I think this guy is unbelievable. I really like him. And he's a good person. Look how nice he is and kind he is to the sheep. Look how benevolent he is and careful he is. So she told him that I would marry you if you would go to yeshiva. If you'd go and study more about Judaism, I would marry you. And Rabbi Akiva said, really? And then he saw that water drip on the stone. And he said, if already water can penetrate a stone, all the more so Torah, the study of Torah can penetrate my heart, which is soft, much softer than a stone. And Torah is compared to water. So he decided that he's going to do it. And she decided to marry him. And what happened? Kalba Saver says, wait, why are you not getting married? She says, I want to get married to that guy there. You see that guy in the fields? I want to get married to him. Kalba Saver says, you get married to him, I disown you. you have, I make an oath that you can't use anything I own. And she said, fine. And she got married to him and he disowned, he made an oath that she can't have anything that he owns. So she also, all of a sudden came from the wealthiest home to the poorest. She became extremely poor. And they went into this, they managed to get this little hay, uh, uh, hay uh, farm, the little place, little garage. And they managed to sleep there. And they had some hay. And she, they were sleeping there. And, and Rabbi Akiva, they just got married. Rabbi Akiva made her a Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. He made her with straw. He made her some kind of um, braid for her hair. And he says to her, one day, I'm going to be wealthy enough to buy you a Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, a golden. That's where the song Yerushalayim Shel Zahav comes from. I'll buy you a golden crown. That was their beautiful way of, like, that was the beauty for a woman to wear. That was their jewelry the, in those days. I'll, I'll give you a crown. So she 
At that point, he agrees. He goes to yeshiva, spends 24 years, and comes the greatest rabbi of all. He undoes the oath that Kalba Saveya made. Beautiful story. Unbelievable story. But whilst they were in that hut with the straw, do you know what God did? They were so deep, so sad. Rachel was so sad. At that point, God sent Eliyahu and Navi, Elijah the prophet, to knock at their door in the middle of the night. He knocks on their hay door, knocks on, and he asks Akiva, Rabbi Akiva and, and Rachel, do you guys have any hay that I can borrow? Because my wife just gave birth and we need hay to put our baby onto. And Rabbi Akiva looks at Rachel and they were appeased. They were reconciled. They, they said to her, look, somebody can't even afford hay. At least we have hay. They were in such a depressed state. But when, I mean depressed, they were the greatest of the greats. But whatever it was, they were very, they were very broken by their situation. She came from such a wealthy home. But Elijah the prophet was knocking and he was brought by God to reconcile with them. How? By them seeing that there's someone in a much worse state, that they could have been worse. That's called to appease. So that's what we've got to do. We've got to be the people that run quick. Zerizut, quick. That's one of the ways that we remove ourselves from bad thoughts. If there's music that's playing that's, fo- that's bad for me, don't wait and leave it playing. Turn it off. If I'm in a bad environment, right, that's bad for me, just walk out. Don't wait. The waiting is the problem. If a mitzvah comes into your hand, don't let it come chametz. Don't wait. That's one of the ideas of the Jewish people running out of Egypt because we didn't want to wait. Okay, so I've finished for now on the parsha and my talk of the parsha. But I do want to speak for a few minutes about Passover. Do you guys want to hear about Passover for a few minutes? So this Thursday night is when we do a nightfall. We'd make a blessing. You can ask me any questions you want. And we'd go around the house looking for chametz. You light a candle this Thursday night. As soon as it's sundown, you light a candle and you walk around your house with a candle it's good. And as you do it, you say, I'm trying to remove the chametz in me. Not just in my house. But as I'm looking for the bread, the leavened bread, I'm asking to say, I want to l- remove the problems in me. Where is the me? Where is the chametz in me? What's chametz? Where we wait. Right? Bread is something which waits. Where is the laziness in me? Where are the bad midot in me that I need to change? So that's done on Thursday night. Friday morning. We uh, burn our chametz, and that's done by around 11.50. We do not say any blessings or anything, because really, Erev Pesach is actually on Shabbat. Passover this year is Saturday night, starts Saturday night. That's when Passover starts. So we first have a regular Shabbat. Saturday night is when we have the first night of Passover. So... Because we, not, we can't burn the chametz on Saturday because it's Shabbat, we do it on Friday. So Friday morning is a time that you can burn your chametz. If you can't burn it, it doesn't matter. But it's a nice custom that we do is we burn it. Um, Friday afternoon uh, is regular Shabbat. But you have to make sure that you, if you're keeping Shabbat and Yom Tov, that you have a 24-hour candle, 25-hour candle. 
so that you can have a candle till after Shabbat. Then uh, Shabbat day. Now every year, you're actually not meant to eat bread already from the day before. On the day before Erev Pesach, which this year is Shabbat. So Friday night, you can still have a bit of bread. You should leave yourself enough bread for the Friday night meal and enough bread for the Shabbat day meal. Otherwise, have no more bread in your home. Just enough for the Shabbat Friday night and enough for Shabbat day. Shabbat day, you've got to finish your meal by. I hope you are going to remember all this. But Shabbat day, you've got to finish your meal by around 10.50. Finish eating your bread, at least. And then uh, no more chametz, no more bread from Shabbat day morning at 10.50. Until the rest of the day, no more eating bread. Now, um, this year we can't have sudash lishit with bread because already that's the time that we're not allowed to eat bread. So people would at that point either bring matzah ashi. You can't eat matzah either. Because matzah, you have to eat on the night of Passover with excitement. And if you have it during the day, you're not going to be excited to have matzah. You're like, oh, I've had matzah already. It's not that exciting. You're not allowed to eat matzah on Shabbat. The whole Shabbat, you're not allowed to eat matzah. So um, what some people do is use matzah ashira, which is egg matzah. You can eat that because that's not considered as real matzah. Or they would eat fruit and eggs. Fruit is also something that's good enough. And that's it. As soon as Shabbat is out, we make Havdalah and we start the Seder with Havdalah. Using a candle that's already lit. We can't, um, right? We, we can't pacify, we can't make a new fire with a, with a match. But we just use the candle that we have already lit. And we'd say, um, We'd say we start off the seder and on the books of the seder, which we're giving out free, a beautiful Haggadah book. You will have the entire Haggadah, hard copy. Serena, you've got to come and pick it up. Yes, you want it? Okay, we have a beautiful, beautiful Haggadah that you can do Passover for yourselves with uh, yourself. It has all the great explanations in it. Thank you. So that's basically, sorry, sorry, Serena, what was that? I was just telling Omri that I'm looking for a Haggadah book. Perfect. Yeah. You gotta thank come you. pick it up. It's gorgeous. I'll show you. It's hard copy. It's like a real cost like 20 bucks and we're giving it to you. So this is it. And it has everything you need in it. And it's got really nice explanations. It has transliteration, translation. It has you know, some Kabbalistic things behind it. It's really nice, sweet, not too long. It's perfect. I'm telling you, this is what you all need. So um, it's called the Simply Jewish Haggadah. And um, so that's basically what we're going to do is we're going to have Passover on Sunday night. And then uh, also Monday night is also the second night of Passover. You have to know also, it says, uh, you shouldn't have, see it, or you shouldn't uh, find it. Meaning, it, it says, yours. If it belongs to a non you're allowed to walk into Ralph's, even though they sell bread and Passover. There's nothing wrong with seeing, as long as it's not yours. You're not allowed to own the 
chametz. And therefore, many people will sell it. You can actually sell it. There's a Chabad website on Chabad.com.org or whatever. You could sell chametz there. And they have a um, sale for chametz there. It's very, very simple. You fill up the form. You just say exactly where your chametz is. And you can sell it. By the way, whiskey is also chametz. Beer is chametz. Anything with flour or starch in it is chametz. Um, We're going to go as gluten-free as possible this, uh, this holiday. Besides for matzah. Yes. Anyone got questions? Omri? No, I was just thinking about this bottle of whiskey I have in... Yeah, I, I should get rid of the alcohol in my room. Can we go so, like drop it off at the Aishlid building? Not here. No, don't don't drop it by me. Not Aishlid, the Aish building next to Maury's. Um, no, it's not a good idea. You can maybe put it in Maury's, but they they you won't be able to get in. It's closed. Um, I'm trying to think. Just sell it on Chabad. Go to go to Chabad's website and sell it, and then you can use it after Passover. If you didn't sell it and you owned it during Passover. You're not allowed to use it after Passover. You have to get rid of it. That's how bad it is. You hear? Wait, 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 wait. So if I didn't sell it... If you didn't sell it and you owned it during Passover, you're not allowed to drink it after at all. Forever. My gosh, that's not good. It's not good. So sell it on Chabad.org. Very simple form to sell your Chabad. Sell my Chabad on Chabad. You're not allowed to own it, but if it's in your house and you cover it and you put it aside and you've sold it, that's fine. Now, about utensils. Do you know about this? Do you want to know? It's best to not use utensils that you use. Not just best. You have to not use utensils that you use during the year. And the way to kosher it is kind of simple. We have a rule. How do you kosher utensils? The way it absorbs is the way you remove so, for instance, something that is directly on fire and it's used to cook with. So you need to cook it as well. For instance, a pot, a pan that you uh, fry your eggs on, a pan that you fry your eggs on it. Then what you do is you have to put that pan in boiling water. You get a big pot and pour it into boiling water. If you can't do that, then you may as well get yourself a new pan. And what you have to do is get a big pot, fill it with boiling water, boil the water, and then pour the pot in it. You don't have to put the whole thing in one shot. You can put the one side, then turn it, put the other side. But the area that cooks, the whole area that cooks, has to be boiled in the water because the way it absorbs is the way you remove the chametz from it. Uh, things that are not directly used on the flame, like your fork and knife. Your fork and knife is not used on the flame. Right? That's just something that you use to eat on a plate. So that's good enough with pouring hot water on it. You could just get hot water on it and pour on it. This is all on condition that it's metal. If anything here is made of earthenware, of clay, then you can't do it. One second, my baby's crying. One second, let me. Oh no. Um. Which baby okay, is so it? I was saying, yes, she's fine. So um, anything that's used, like forks, utensils, all that can be done with just pouring hot water on it and it's good enough. Okay, your, also your um, countertops. 
That's good enough. You clean it. You pour hot water on it because normally hot stuff does go on it. So you just pour hot water on it everywhere from, directly from the kettle, and that makes it kosher. An oven. If you want to kosher up your oven, um, if you want to kosher your oven, you put it on its highest heat, put it on its highest, highest heat uh, for an hour, and that would kosher up your oven, okay? And that's the way you clean it, clean it well. This is a good time for cleaning. Clean the oven well. You wait 24 hours. Don't use it for 20 hour, 24 hours. And then put it on its highest heat. And that's how you kosher an oven as well. Medicine, in general, does not need to have a kosher for Passover uh, sign on it. In general, it's better if you find one that does. But generally, they don't have a taste. So it's fine to have medicine if, if you need to um, during Passover. Uh, if you're, for sure, if somebody's sick, really, it's dangerous if they don't have it, then no matter whether it has a taste or not, you're allowed to have it. But if you're not sick, let's say it's a type of Tylenol that, ha is, that has a taste to it, then it's better to not eat it, use it, and get one which is kosher for Passover. If it has no taste, then it's okay, and you, it doesn't need to have a kosher for Passover symbol on it, and it's good enough on Passover as well, under all circumstances. Um... And that's basically it. On the night of Passover, you need to eat matzah shmura. Do you know the difference between matzah shmura and regular matzah? Made by hand. Yes, the mitzvah is mainly to get handmade matzah. Uh, that's more important. If you can't get hold of it, fine. But in general, that's mainly, at least for the first night. Because it says, And the main mitzvah is on the night, on the first night. So you have to try as hard as you can to get hold of Mitzvah that was guarded, that was looked after, that was handmade, lishma, with the right intention by a human being the whole way through for the sake of matzah. And that's also the mitzvah. You know, we lean on the left-hand side for matzah, and we lean also for the wine. When you drink the wine on Passover, lean, say, ah, feel the royalty. Look how good my life is. Look how blessed I am. You have to mean it. You have to mean it and mean it, mean it, that you're free. Get rid of all your complaints. I am a free man. I'm a free woman. And take that great, that wine and lean to your left-hand side and drink it. Same with matzah. You, you lean and you eat the matzah. You're not just free. You're free because you're connected to God. That's the main message, right? And maror, you don't lean for because that's remembering the bitterness. So that you don't, you don't say, I'm free, let's taste the bitterness of Egypt. That doesn't really make sense. So for Maror, for the bitterness, you do not lean at all, and you eat it like that. But anyway, in general, this will all have the guide for you. Yes. Okay. What, 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 wait, what, what? No, I was asking if all of this is written down, like all the rules, because you just mentioned a bunch of like, other like general rules for Pesach that you know, won't necessarily be part of the pure Haggadah. You know, because the Haggadah just describes how to do the seder. Exactly. So there's also rules of having a kosher Passover, like to legit Passover. Where as much as you can, every year you grow and you try as much as you can to do a proper Passover. So, um, yes, these are the rules. And I can send you, if you want, on Safaria, there's something called Kitsur Shulchan Aruch. A sh 
a Shulchan Aruch, which has all the directions that you need in order to running a kosher Passover Jewish law. Um, but that's generally the, the idea. The way that, actually, I wouldn't suggest Omri you doing it because you're Sephardi. Sephardic uh, custom uses a different type of Shulchan Aruch, which is a bit more lenient. That's, uh, that's a bit more stringent. There's Yelkut Yosef, which you can also search, and that is a halacha book that's written and very simple and concise and can direct you also with all the laws as well. Okay? So what that's that basically one? it. Rabbi? Sorry, Gil? What, what was that one that you just said? It's called Yalkut Yosef. Yalkut Yosef for Sephardic Jewry. That's a um, halacha book, Jewish law, and it directs you on how to live Jewish legit properly, right? Not just um, in theory, but in reality. So these are generally the ways you have to kosher. Officially, we kosher our kitchen. If you can't, then just buy yourself one new pot, some new utensils, and you're also good to start off new like that as well. Or if you have anything glass, if you have any glass, that can just be washed. And that's also doesn't need to even be koshered. You just wash it and it's already, you make sure it's clean and it's kosher for Passover because glass doesn't absorb. Glass does not absorb. So all glass can be used for everything. You can have a glass plate that's used for milky. It could be used for meaty. It could be used for Passover as long as it's clean. Not all at the same time. But as long as it's cleaned, glass can be used and does not need to be koshered. So that's generally the idea. And I wish you all a beautiful, meaningful, thoughtful, positive Passover and kosher Passover. By the, by the way, when we, wish, when we wish people a happy Passover, we say Chag Pes Kasher, right? Chag Kasher V'Samech. We say, have a happy and kosher Passover holiday. Why kosher? Because it's so many intricate details on this holiday and it's so easy to make it not kosher that we need a wish that the holiday will be kosher as well. So it's not, it's not like it's uh, simple to have a kosher Passover. And we wish ourselves to have a kosher one where we do it in as good way of a po- as, as possible so we can enjoy it and know that we are doing the right way, the good way, proper way, and meaningful way. All right. Are there any questions besides for the questions that were asked? Do you have anything else that you want to I, know? I, I had a question. I also yes. wanted to say something. Uh, this is like more relevant to just Serena and, and you. So I don't want to hold people up. Um, no, um, we converted our garage to a living unit. It's attached to our house. But we have a non-Jewish woman that's living there. She's renting like, from you? Yeah, she's so she's renting the place from us. But I'm wondering, can I like give her all my chametz and have her give me a dollar and then like have me give her the dollar back after Pesach and then she gives me the stuff back because she's not Jewish. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can definitely do it with her and ask her to sell the chametz to you. Uh, but you have to make her give you the dollar. Well, I'll just be like, hey, I'm going to give you this stuff. You're going to give me a dollar and you're going to hold on to it for this like next week. Yeah, you can sell it to her. Okay. Wanted to That's make sure. I didn't know if it. I don't know if it made a difference. The fact that she was living on, you know, with us, under us, and you know that the property no. is attached. It's now considered as hers. 
The rule is that someone who rents is the owner of the house. So they are considered, in some ways, that that, that domain is under their, their right. They have paid the right for it for 30 days or whatever, however long they're paying. Right? right. They, have the, they have the rights on that land. You can't just walk into her house now if she's renting from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that it, makes sense. It's considered as her domain. And therefore, even chametz in her house is not yours. It's hers. So it's okay. Cool. Good question, though. Anything else? Gil, do you have any questions? Passover. Um, yeah, I do actually have a question. Um, sure. Isn't there, there's a fast, right, before, before Passover? Yes. Before Pesach? So, it's very interesting. Are you a firstborn? Yeah. Oh, wow. So there is something called the fast of the firstborns. Oops. That is done always the day of before Passover. And this year, the day before Passover is Shabbat. And because it's Shabbat, you can't fast on Shabbat, nor can you fast on the day before Shabbat, which is Friday. Mm-hmm. And for this reason, the whole thing has been pushed to Thursday. So actually, the fast of the firstborn is officially tomorrow. Okay. But is it, is you it have a lenient sundown? Yeah. But you have a leniency. You have a number of leniencies. First of all, it's a pushed off one. So it's not that severe. It's not that serious. Second of all, you can go to a siyum, a celebration, a siyum of finishing a Talmud. And that's enough of a reason to allow you to eat. You celebrate a Torah. And someone who finished a whole Talmud makes a special thing called a siyum, celebration. And um, with that, they can... Uh, they, they can eat all day. So what I would suggest to you is to come for a siyum. I'll give you an address and I can tell you where to come. I've, I've also finished a Talmud. I can do it for you. But I can, I can give you an address and we could do a siyum. I could tell you where to go tomorrow morning. I don't know what, what your schedule is like. But if you want, you can go to a siyum. Come pray somewhere. And we'll do the celebration and then you're allowed to eat. The reason why there's a fast for the firstborns is because God's, God could have taken away our firstborns also. We got spared on this day from the 10th plague of firstborns. And all the firstborns could have also been killed in the Jewish people. But they weren't. They were spared. And because we were saved, in order to celebrate that, we need to recognize it and think about it. And therefore, we have this fast that we have so um you you're in a special position to be a firstborn it's considered a a special thing a lot of people also firstborn girls uh as well fast as well they also do it so i don't know if serena's a firstborn no you are she's not i'm an only child oh i thought you said you said serena i thought you said sarit oh Oh, no 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 Serena's firstborn, see? so We're um, probably both firstborn, huh, sorry. (laughs) You're fine. In general, you're all fine. You don't even need to fast because this year it's all been pushed. Normally, you would fast the day before. This year, the day before is Shabbat, and it doesn't, you can't fast on Shabbat. 